Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at the um, wonderful gift that you've given us of, of water baptism, we pray that you would help us understand uh, the teaching of Scripture more deeply, and um, we would be able to immerse ourselves in this. In Jesus' name, amen. That was a pun. <laughs> but, um, um, I thought that was totally accidental. So, um... You know, yesterday, um, I told you that we would look, since we're kind of in Acts right now when we're getting hit over and over again with baptism, we would pause and we would think about um, both what, what we can find in Scripture about the mode of baptism and also about who should receive baptism. And yesterday we took some time and spoke about the different symbolism that we could find in support of baptism via immersion, sprinkling, uh, and pouring. And I argued that I think pouring is perhaps the, the best of the three. Not that the other two are totally unbiblical, but that maybe pouring should be preferred. And my argument for that largely comes from the book of Acts, where the... A gift of water baptism is tied over and over again to Jesus pouring out the Spirit on Pentecost. John the Baptist made this connection first back in the Gospels where he said, I baptize you with water, the one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then on the day of Pentecost, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And the verb that the prophet Joel used is that the Spirit was poured out upon them. And that's what Peter uses as well as he's preaching. Uh, throughout the book of Acts, you get to the story of, of like, um, you know, Cornelius, where the Gentiles receive water baptism, and then the Spirit is poured out on them. Uh, Ephesus, these people have been baptized with John's baptism, but Jesus... Uh, Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that they've known. So Paul goes to them and says, have you received the Spirit whenever you were baptized? They said, we don't even know that there is a Spirit. And so he baptizes them with water, and then the Spirit is poured out on them. And so consistently, uh, in the New Testament, we see that what is happening in water baptism is meant to be a picture of the baptism of the Spirit uh, and so because Jesus chose to baptize his church with the Spirit through pouring to really protect and emphasize that symbolism, uh, I've made the case that maybe the most appropriate way for baptisms to be conducted is through pouring. Um, but sprinkling and immersion can also pick up on some important themes that we see in the scriptures too. Um, today I want to mainly... Uh, focus on who should receive water baptism. And uh, there are two major positions on this. They're called paedo-baptism and credo-baptism. Credo is uh, where we get the word creed from. Uh, it means I believe. And so credo-baptism sometimes will go by the term uh, believer's baptism. And uh, what's meant by that is believer's only baptism. What, what, what credo-baptism refers to is uh, 
idea relating to baptism that the only people who should receive baptism are people who have made a profession of faith first. So credo-baptism says that baptism is only for believers. It's only for people who have already confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord uh, and believed in their heart that God raised them from the dead. After they have made their own profession of faith, credo-baptism says only after that should they then receive baptism. So, um, really the only denominations that are credo-baptist, there's really only two. Um, and it is, of course, Baptist, and then um, the other credo-Baptist um, denomination is Church of Christ. Uh, those two denominations teach um, baptism for believers only. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of times, uh, like independent churches are usually pretty Baptist in, in the way that they, uh, they think. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people that attend like more independent churches would also be in this camp as well. Um, Pedo-baptism um, is, uh, is the belief in infant baptism. So uh, it's not that uh, pedo-baptists are opposed to believer's baptism. So, so like if, you, if you're a person who is pedo-baptist and there's a person who's never been baptized before and then they make a profession of faith and want to then join the church, um, they would still undergo baptism. So um, really, it's believer's baptism, but then also we, uh, Pado-Baptists would believe in, in baptism of infants as well. So what that means is, um, really the better way to say it is, Pado-Baptist believes that baptism is for believers and for their children, or if we wanted to use the word that we find in Acts, their household. Um, so I am in the Pado baptist camp. Some of you are, some of you aren't. That's okay. I want to present the argument for it, though, because I think it's probably something that a lot of you guys have not heard before. And um, so I, I want to give you the argument for Pado baptism as I see it in Scripture. Um, before we do that, we need to make some sort of an acknowledgement of um, what baptism does in the book of Acts. Um, will somebody read for us Acts 2.41? So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Yeah, so notice in that text um, what's happening. All right, Peter is preaching to people who do not know Jesus, okay? They're not people in relationship with Jesus. He's, he's preaching to unbelievers, and he presents the gospel to them. And then um, they receive his word, and they want to join what community? After they become Christians, what do they want to be a part of? What are they being added to? The church. Right. So these people have not they're they're not Christians, but they hear Peter present the gospel. They have now received Peter's word and they want to be added among the disciples. They want to be added among the church. And the way that they are added among the church before 
before we get to the last part of the verse that says that they were added that day 3,000 men, what do they undergo before they're officially considered part of the church? Baptism. They undergo baptism. So, um, you know, they receive the word, they have faith, they receive salvation, and now they want to be a part of the community of Jesus's people. And what they do to kind of become members of that group is they undergo baptism. Okay. So what, there's a lot of things that we could, if we're asking the question, like what, what does baptism do or what does baptism mean? There's a lot of different ways that we can answer that. But for today, what we're going to kind of stick with for, for today, and maybe we'll go past this tomorrow, is baptism is the right of entrance into a church community. Now, um, before we go any further, let me kind of say what that means and what that doesn't mean. You guys remember the story further in Acts where there are these Christians uh, in Ephesus who don't even know about the Holy Spirit yet. They've been baptized into John's baptism, but they've not been baptized into Jesus's baptism yet. Um, that's in Acts 19. And the text does genuinely call them disciples. It, it speaks of them as Christians, even though they've not yet, uh, you know, been appropriately baptized. So I would understand that to mean that these people are saved. They're Jesus's people. But for them to kind of officially be a part of the church community in the world, they undergo the rite of baptism. So, so kind of the equivalent of that today is, okay, uh, I share the gospel with a friend at coffee this afternoon, and he gets saved. That person's saved. He's part of Jesus's people. He dies tonight, he goes to heaven, and he's with the community of the saints. But for him to officially come into membership of a local church in this area, you know what the local church is going to have him do? Be Undergo the rite of baptism and identify with Christ in baptism. Okay? So, um... Baptism is, in Acts 2.41, the right of entrance into the church community. So, we're asking the question, who should receive it? Who should be given entrance into the church community? The two camps, again, are only those who have made a verbal profession of faith and been counted as believers, or is it believers and their children as well? Um... In the Old Testament, there was a right of entrance into the community of Israel, wasn't there? What was it? Circumcision. Circumcision. Who was circumcision given to? Men. Okay, it was given to men, um, but who specifically was it given to? Was it given, uh, <laughs> are you born into the nation of Israel? And then you grow up, and whenever you're about 13, you make a profession of faith, and then you have five people hold you down. As, uh, is, is that how circumcision goes most of the time in Israel? Eight days old. So Abraham, right, is the one who receives circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis 17, verse 7, 
God speaks and says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And then after God says that, he says, I'll be God to you and your offspring after you. I'm making my promises to you, Abraham, and to your children after you. What God does after that is he gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. And Abraham, who has believed God's promises, is circumcised. And you know who else is circumcised? All of Abraham's sons. So, in the Old Testament you have something that is a right of entrance into the community of God's people. It's circumcision. Does circumcision save in the Old Testament? No, right? Abraham was saved in Genesis 15. He was circumcised in Genesis 17. So so you're not saved by circumcision. But if you want to officially be counted as part of God's people, you undergo that right if you're a man, all right? So in, in the Old Testament, do we have... Credo circumcision or pedo circumcision? Pedo. It's for believers and for their children after them. And aren't you glad? <laughs> I would have been if I was a, a kid back then. So, um, baptism and circumcision are in some ways related then. Both of them are the right of entrance into the community of God's people. Circumcision in the Old Testament baptism in the new testament the apostle paul actually compares the two of them in colossians 2 11 through 12 and and he makes a connection between circumcision and baptism so that's not just something that that we're making up that's something that paul sees as well um whenever we turn to the book of acts and the church is being established on the day of pentecost um and the first big baptism ceremony is performed Uh, Remind me again, what type of people is is Peter preaching to? In the day of Pentecost, what type of people is uh, Peter preaching to? Yeah, Jews from all over the world. Acts 2, 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, but they are Jews. So what book do they know real well? The The Old Testament. You think that they're familiar with... Abraham? You think they're familiar with circumcision? You think that they know that circumcision is for believers and for their children? So, Peter preaches his sermon. He calls these people to faith. And then he says this in Acts 2.39. The promise is for you and for your your offspring or your Children. children. Notice that Peter is seemingly quoting something. Genesis 17, 7, I'll be God to you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant throughout your generations to be God to you and your children after you. And then right after God says that in Genesis 17, 7, what's the very next thing that he gives Abraham? Circumcision for Abraham and his household. So imagine that you're a Jewish person. You've been raised in this culture where the right of entry is for believers and for their children. Circumcision is for believers and their children. And then Peter preaches, and then he looks at you, 
and says, repent and be baptized, and this promise is for you and your children after you, seemingly quoting the circumcision promise to Abraham, how would you naturally hear that? Baptism is for the same group. That's how I would naturally hear it. And I think the rest of the books of, book of Acts testifies to this, because whenever we get to Acts 10, and then two times in Acts 16, and then in Acts 18, and then in 1 Corinthians 1, there's this interesting phrase that shows up where, you know who's baptized over and over again? Households. Which is, again, a Genesis 17 word. Abraham receives the rite of circumcision, and he circumcises his household. And, and that's important in Genesis 17:7 because he doesn't actually only circumcise his sons. He, he has, uh, like, male servants. He, he has other people living in his household. He circumcises all of them. The whole household is. Um, so, seems to me like... Okay, if I'm putting my shoes, putting, if, I, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the people originally listening, listening to Peter preach, I've been raised Jewish, and I know the promise to Abraham, I know the promise of circumcision is for both me and my children. Now, Peter is saying there's a new rite of entrance, if you want to be part of the disciples, part of the church, it's through baptism. And then he looks at me and says, this promise is for you and your children. And then I start reading Acts and I see household baptism, household baptism, household baptism, just like Abraham circumcised his own. You see where it looks like there's a lot of continuity between these two actions. Uh, It seems like the people who received circumcision are the people who should receive baptism. So that Paul in like Galatians 3 uh, says, all of you were baptized into Christ, male and female. Who could be, who could be circumcised? Only, only men who had the right body part for it. Um, baptism is, is more democratized. Uh, but uh, apart from that, it seems like there's strong continuation there. You guys have questions on that so far? I have more to say, but you guys at least tracking with that. If you're a Credo Baptist, um, the way a Credo Baptist would push back against this um, is a lot of times Credo Baptists like to make the point, and it's, a, it's an accurate point, um, that do any of these texts ever tell you exactly who, is, who makes up these households? No. So uh, is it possible that uh, everyone in the household was at an age where all of them could profess faith and then be baptized? Is that possible? It is. So a credo-baptist would sometimes point at that and say, well, maybe that's not actually a, a, a proof text pedo-baptists can use. At the same time, is there anything in the text that says, and by the way, all of these people were at an age where they could believe themselves. It doesn't say that either. It doesn't. And so what I think we have to do 
is we have to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who were listening to Peter and the shoes of the people who were first reading the book of Acts. And if we put ourselves back in their shoes and we remember that the people listening to Peter are largely, uh, on the day of Pentecost at least, Jewish people, uh, and that a lot of the people first reading the book of Acts, a lot of them will be Gentiles, but a lot of them will be Jews too, um, I think we have to read this language through the lens of what we know from the Old Testament. Uh, and whenever we do that, I, I think that uh, I think that supports the Pado-Baptist position. Um, let me show you something else that I think uh, supports this position. Um, you guys know the word covenant, right? What is a covenant? It's a promise, but it's more than just a promise. It's a, uh, it's a binding promise, right? Um, well, if I look at Josh and I say, Josh, you make 100 on your next test, I'll give you 100 bucks. And then he does, and I don't. You can't really suit me. But if we made a written agreement out and I said, Josh, I, Mr. Jackson Gravett, do hereby swear that if you make a 100, I will give you $100 as a reward, and we went down to the courthouse, if we got it notarized, at that point, I am legally bound to do it, and there could be punishments put on me if I don't do it. So, so a covenant kind of takes a promise and ups the ante. There's, uh, there's rewards for obedience, there are punishments for uh, failing to do what you, what you swore to do. Um, there's a number of covenants throughout the Bible. Uh, the covenant that Jesus made Anybody know what it's called? The New Covenant. All right. Jesus on uh, Last Supper says, this is the New Covenant in my blood. All right. So this is the Jesus Covenant. We're going to kind of put it down here by itself. There's a number of other covenants in the Bible. Very first one, we sometimes call it the Adamic covenant. Who do you think it was made with? Adam. Adam. All right. After that, uh, there's another one before Abraham, the Noahic covenant. Uh, After that, we have Abraham's covenant. After Abraham, Mosaic covenant with Moses. After that, we have a lesser-known covenant. Not many people know about this one. Is it for Joshua? This is uh, not between Jonathan and God. It's between Jonathan and who? Joshua. David. David. Jonathan and David make a covenant. Uh, it's an important one. Yeah. Uh, And then we have the Davidic covenant. And then I'll I'll move the other one up. We have Jesus' new covenant. Um, Whenever we're thinking about, okay, who should be considered part of the new covenant community, part of the church, basically, uh, part of the people group, Uh, We should think about covenants in general. 
All right, God made a covenant with Adam. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. What would the flip side be? If Adam obeys, he will what? Live. And probably a reference to eternal life because there's the second tree there called the tree of life, life, you know, um, lest he stretch out his hand and live forever, right? Um, When Adam broke this covenant, did it only affect Adam? No. Who else did it affect? All of his, all of his offspring, all of his descendants, all of his. We'll just use the word children. Children are involved here. Our first father Adam brought death into the world that touches and affects all of us, right? The Adamic covenant is made specifically with Adam, but it affects Adam's children as well. They have a stake in this. They have a part in this. Right? Noah's covenant, um, same thing. Who gets into the ark? The righteous man Noah gets into the ark with his wife and his family. How many kids? He has three sons and then their three wives. So the Noahic covenant is made with Noah, but it also affects his household more generally. It also has, his, his children still have a stake in it. They're still involved in it. The Abrahamic covenant, we just looked at that in Genesis 17.7, I'll be God to you and your offspring after you. And then the sign of circumcision is given not just to Abraham, but to all of his offspring after him. So it involves children. Um, And and think about it this way, too. Um, There are a couple of people in Abraham's household who are incredibly wicked in the story. His first son is named what? Who's his mama? Hagar. Hagar. Are they presented as positive or negative characters? Negative. Negative characters. Um, Hagar is kind of taken advantage of, but whenever she comes back, she does not do what is right. She's, She's not good. Ishmael is not good. He persecutes Isaac. And so, um, Abraham sends the two of them away. But in the wilderness, who meets them and takes care of them? The angel of the Lord. All right? So, these two wicked people, Hagar and Ishmael, even though they're not great individuals, they're part of Abraham's household. And so, God cares for them even as he cares for Abraham and Sarah. So the household definitely has a stake in this one because of the promise, because of the sign of the promise. Uh, you know, we just see over and over again that that's true. Mosaic covenant, um, you might remember uh, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which God gave at Sinai, kind of the big thesis verse of Sinai. Uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. generation. The thousands there, the word, it, it doesn't say keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, but the thousands there and the three and four are supposed to be read in light of each other. What God is saying is, I keep steadfast love to a thousand generations, 
and, and my, my disciplines are only for three or four. Okay? So again, in, in both of those phrases, we see that the Mosaic Covenant involves a generational promise. Uh, for the fathers down to the children, the children's children, to a thousand generations. Jonathan and David make a covenant. The reason why is, who is Jonathan's daddy? What does Saul want to do to David? Kill him. Kill him. Uh, Jonathan is supposed to be the next what? Humanly speaking, Jonathan should be the next king. According to God's plan, David will be the next king, though. And Jonathan makes a covenant with David, and in it, he basically says, I know that God's at work to make you the next king. Even though my dad is the king, even though I should be the next king, I'm siding with you, David. Because Jonathan's a bro, right? Um, There are very few characters in scripture that I love more than Jonathan. It's awesome. Um, So Jonathan makes a covenant with David. And he, he basically says, as for me and my household, David, we're with you. Now, Jonathan's covenant winds up having ramifications for one of his sons. Whenever Saul's household is defeated, all of Saul's household basically dies uh, eventually, except for one person. That one lame crippled. Yeah, a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, who's crippled in his feet. And whenever David becomes king... He says, I've made a covenant. David, Jonathan and I made a covenant together. Jonathan's dead, but is there anyone left of Jonathan's household who I can bless? And he goes and finds Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and blesses him. So, Jonathanic covenant, does it have ramifications for Jonathan's kid? It does. Children are involved here, too. Davidic covenant, God says to David, I'll establish your house so that you'll have a king on the throne forever. Your son after you will be the king, on and on and on and on. So obviously it's a promise related to children there. The Davidic covenant isn't just for David, but Solomon, whenever he becomes king, he's the Davidic king. He has the Davidic covenant. And then whenever uh, his son becomes king, even though Rehoboam is wicked, he's the Davidic king. He has the Davidic covenant all the way down. Has ramifications for kids. So, looking at this, these are all Old Testament covenants. This is the New Testament covenant. But every single covenant in the Old Testament, what is true about it? The children. The children are part. We could go so far as to say participants in the covenant. It's made with Noah. It's made with Abraham, right? But the children are a part of it. They're mentioned. They they have a stake in this covenant. They receive circumcision. They receive membership. They receive a place in the ark. Right? They receive blessing. And so, I think that we could go so far as to say this. By definition, a covenant has to do with kids. If it doesn't have to do with kids, it's not a covenant. If the new covenant breaks, and it's not for believers and for their children after them, uh, if the new covenant breaks that mold, 
then it is the one anomaly in all of Scripture. And so I think that Peter saying this uh, promise is for you and your children after you shows that it also has a place for children. In fact, Jesus says, if you want to be one of my people, what do you have to become like? Born again. Born again, and you have to be like one of these little ones. Luke tells us that he's not just holding any old kid whenever he says that. He's holding an infant in his arms. That's what he's telling us to become like. So what does it mean then for believers and their kids to be part of the uh, covenant community? Well, um, Abraham in the Old Testament is given the sign of circumcision. And he circumcises his offspring. Do all of his offspring walk in the footsteps of his faith? No, but do they all receive circumcision? Yeah. In the same way, uh, believers baptize their children today, I think, or or, uh, that's what the scriptures are leading us to say. Um, Does that necessarily mean that the children will walk in the footsteps of their parents' faith? Not necessarily. Did that come? Violet, they called you. I don't think that, I don't think that saying, okay, um, they're baptized, they're circumcised, that doesn't necessitate faith. Um, I think what it does do is this. Um, Circumcision wasn't a guarantee of salvation. Which one of Abraham's sons was circumcised but not saved? Ishmael. Can you think of other Israelites who were circumcised but not saved? Korah, circumcised, not saved. Uh, Saul? You convinced that... uh, I'm not talking about Saul, Paul. I'm talking about Old Testament Saul. You guys convinced Saul's in heaven? No. Yeah, probably not. Right? Uh, Saul, uh, circumcised... Not saved. What about a old king Ahab? <laughs> okay. Circumcised, not saved. So circumcision, it's not a guarantee of salvation. Being a part of the community of Israel or being a part of the community of Abraham's family, that didn't guarantee salvation. And in the same way, being born into a believing household and being part of a church through baptism, that doesn't guarantee salvation. Okay, so people who were circumcised in the Old Testament, they still needed to profess faith in Christ, uh, just like, or profess faith in God in the Old Testament, just like Abraham did. They needed to walk in the footsteps, not just of, of, of circumcision, but in the footsteps of faith. In the same way, people born into the church today, do they have to be saved? Do they have to make a profession of faith? Do they have to grow up and believe on the Lord for themselves? They do, all right? So I don't think that uh, this is a guarantee of salvation. A person still has to grow up and uh, choose to follow the Lord. But what did circumcision do in the Old Testament? What was its purpose? It didn't save, but what did it do? Yeah, uh, there was a separateness. Separation from the nations, or we could say separation from from what? The nations don't believe, so it's a separation from from unbelievers. Uh, It's a special mark 
that God put on children that separated them from unbelievers. It was a special mark put on children where the Lord was claiming them as his. And they're called then throughout their life to become his, to give themselves to him. I think that that's part of what baptism does. I think that it is a separation mark. uh, And it is God's mark on his people and he's calling them to be his. And they should grow up and give themselves unto the Lord. Uh, What do you call it being separate from the world? What is the Old Testament word for separate yourselves from the unclean people? Not just be clean, but be holy. Uh, circumcision didn't mean that a person would grow up and necessarily be holy, but it did mean that they were set apart, uh, which is really the meaning in the Old Testament of the term holy. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, He's speaking to the Corinthian church. And he says, um, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, your children are holy. They're set apart for God. Um, So I I think that... uh, I think that this is the way to understand uh, baptism. It's a mark of separation where God is, is putting his mark, putting his claim on the child. Uh, the child is then raised in such a way, admonished to submit themselves unto the Lord, give themselves heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord. Um, it's a mark of holiness, not... Uh, Maybe we could say not moral holiness, but it's a mark of being set apart for the Lord. It's a mark of distinction. Uh, this, you know, um, it's kind of the idea that you might get at with a baby dedication. We're promising to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So maybe you could see, you guys remember Hannah, and uh, she prays for a son, right? What's, what's Hannah's son's name? You guys remember Hannah in the Old Testament? She can't have a kid and prays for a son. She has Samuel. What does she do with Samuel? Where does Samuel grow up? In the tabernacle, right? She, she dedicates him unto the Lord. Um, the, um, you know, if you're in a church that does child dedications, um, I would say really what you're doing is a waterless infant baptism. I think it should involve water. I think I think that infant baptism is is the way to go personally. Um, but this is this is the the argument, the reasoning for it from Scripture. So um, we have some time. What questions do you have about this? Yes. So I've always heard that like infant baptism is like a promise to God, sort of, and then um, creative, I guess, would be like an outward sign of an inward change. Would that be? Yeah, I would say that um, one of the benefits of infant baptism is, baptism is linked to a lot of promises. 
Uh, It's linked to Jesus's promise to send the spirit upon his people. It's linked to Old Testament promises where God says that for those who believe in him, he'll cleanse them and purify them and uh, give them the new birth and, and all these other things. And so in infant baptism, I think what we're doing is we're looking forward, right? Which one comes first, God being gracious and making promises or you having faith? God making promises. So in infant baptism, this, this child can't make a profession of faith yet. Babies can't do that, right? Uh, but God is already giving this child the promises. And one day we're, we're praying and hoping and, uh, pr- and you know, Im- imploring the Lord that this child will grow up and by faith appropriate those promises for himself or herself, right? Um, one thing with the whole credo baptist, you know, it's an outward expression of an inward change. I think that there's truth to that, right? Um, you know, uh, okay, I, I've, I've converted and now I'm going to present myself for baptism. And now I'm showing the world that I've been washed. I've been filled with the spirit, that sort of thing. Um, the thing that I would want to avoid using, the thing that I would want to avoid if I'm going to use language like that is every single time that baptism is used in the New Testament, the idea is that the person being baptized is passive. And the baptizer is not really the minister. Baptism is something God does. We'll see that more as we get into Paul's, uh, the, the language Paul uses, right? So sometimes um, I hear people talk about baptism if they've converted and then they're going to be baptized. I hear people say, this is something I want to do to show God my obedience or something like that. And what I would encourage you to do as we continue to read, especially Paul's letters, is look at the language Paul uses and notice that baptism is not something you do towards God so much as the language that's going to be used in scripture is that it's God towards you in baptism. All right. Baptism isn't something God needs. It's not something that that you do to, you know, uh, it's not something that you do to kind of like benefit God or or prove something to God or something. It's something, it's a gift that God gives. Um, for the better men and strengthening of his church. So we might get into some of that tomorrow. Um, I think the language of an outward sign of an inward change is good as long as we're trying to really preserve that we're passive in that, right? What do you think about people getting baptized? Um, so Ephesians chapter 4 says we were baptized with one baptism. And um, I think it's preferable for you to only be baptized once because that's the entry into the community of God's people, right? Uh, in, in baptism, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's you affiliating yourself with the church and, and, and joining uh, the body. And so um, whenever in the New Testament we see somebody who's a Christian and then they lapse for a period of time and then they come back to the church, um, the idea is is not well. That person used to be saved, then they lost their salvation, then they're resaved. So let's rebaptize them. That's not the idea. The idea is that person was saved. They just really went astray for a while. So we don't really need to reinvite them into the church. We've just celebrate that the sheep that went from the fold is now brought back. So um, I think that rebaptism is not ideal um, if somebody's conscience is like super bothered over it or something like that. 
Um, I think it can be permissible, but I would say it's not really ideal. We haven't really gotten a lot into what baptism does, and I'll be able to explain why I have a little bit of an aversion to rebaptism probably tomorrow, whenever we get into that, though. Okay, Ashley. Pedo Baptists will usually say um, if you're baptized as an infant, you don't need to be rebaptized as an adult or teenager or something like that. Again, like, um, you know, if, if someone was baptized as an infant and then they had very strong Credo Baptist leanings and they, they were, you know, in a position where they thought, I feel like I'm being disobedient if I don't do that. I, I think to preserve the person's conscience, it's okay to let them do that again. Right. But um, I, w- I would say um, like, if I'm, OK, I'm teaching baptism theology right now. Um, if you're baptized as an infant, you don't need to redo it. That would be the position that I take. But again, we haven't gotten too far into what baptism does um, or what all it symbolizes yet. And so uh, we some of those questions, my position on them will hopefully become clear either tomorrow or as we get into Paul next semester. So, other questions? I'm not trying to avoid that. It's just that we have like one minute and it's going to be kind of hard to do that whenever I have lessons planned later on for it, okay? So, um, what was the last thing you guys read? All right, finish Acts, Acts 26 through 28. I told you your test is going to be next Tuesday, right? Next Tuesday. Okay. Do it on the test. Okay. So don't do it. Don't do it on Thursday because you guys are going to be out on Friday, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just do it on the test.